It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This week on Into the Archives with the Boone podcast, uh, the great announcer, the great broadcaster, the great quarterback, uh, Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, Joe Theismann. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. That 82 season, you're a pro bowler. You end up being a Super Bowl champion that year. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, it was those Dolphins. You beat those Dolphins. How ironic. It, years yeah. later, it comes back. And, and that had to be pretty sweet. And and I talk on this program quite a bit, not just about Super Bowls, but but World Series. Uh, maybe a little bit too much. But it's it's important to me to, to just make note how special those times are. How special winning a Super Bowl is. How special winning a World Series is. Because how hard it is. You know, a lot of people, uh, those Yankees of the late 90s, you know, they get four. Some of the guys on the team have five rings. Right. And and I try to tell the average fan that asked me a question about the World Series and and my, you know, my participation in them. I said that that is not normal. That's that's fantasy land where you have five rings. Tom Brady having seven rings. That's fantasy land. I played with so many great players and and with so many guys that didn't even get a chance to go to a World Series, let alone win one. I've been with some guys that went and, and didn't win. And you, every year now, I watch those Super Bowls and I watch those those World Series, maybe occasionally the NBA championship. And when yeah. I see those guys at the end hold, holding that trophy up, I think that's awesome. Really, really cherish that because they don't come along too often. They're special, special times. As you know, you know as well as anybody, it, you've got to be a great team without a doubt, but you've got to get breaks and be playing j- particularly well at the right time. I've seen, I watched the Dodgers this year. The Dodgers are the class of baseball without a doubt on paper, top to bottom. Nobody should beat them. They got outs in the second. You never know. You never know. And uh, just talk about that 82 season your pro bowl season and especially that super bowl well you know it's interesting brett uh, you know the points you make are so good that moment when you're crowned when you're part of a world champion and it's in, in in football the quarterback position is the single most dependent position on the field i mean john riggins was the mvp uh, of that super bowl and rightfully so um our defense i believe held david woodley who has passed since about the last about seven, eight years ago, he was 0 for 17. The Dolphins were 0 for 17, the second half of Super Bowl 17. They didn't complete a pass in the second half. Um, But that, that year was, it was a strike season. Uh, We started with, I think two games and then we went on strike for like six or seven. And I managed to organize workouts we had a really good attendance for five weeks. We just, I took the same game plan we had from the last game and we'd go through, we'd go through practice 
We'd spend an hour and a half out there together, working together, staying together, playing together, practicing together, go grab a beer after it was over together, go over to different guys' houses. Um, And we really stayed together as a football team. And then when we came back, um, you know, we had the opportunity to be able to almost carry those off-field workouts back onto the practice field and continue that run that we were on. So, I mean, you know, in 74, I went through a strike with Washington. In 82, we went through a strike. And I think in 87, uh, there was a strike. So each year there's been a strike. Washington's had some pretty good success winning championships. I'm waiting for the next one. Of course, you know, baseball's in the middle of one now, so who knows what's going to happen there. But um, that 82 season was just – it was magical for us. I mean, Mark Mosley was the MVP. Our kicker was the MVP of the National Football League. It seemed like we were always – in this fight. And I'll never forget what Joe Gibbs said when he took over our ball club in 1981. It's it's either the first or one of the first meetings we had. And Coach Gibbs basically said, we're going to be a 60-minute football team. We want to be in position at the end of a game to be able to win it with a field goal or a touchdown or stop the team from scoring. But we're going to play 60 minutes of football. And that's really what we were. Sure, we had games where we you know, blew guys out and stuff. But we were a 60-minute football team. And, and I think you look around the league now, you look at what, you look at what Tom's doing in Tampa. I mean, the, the, the comeback against the Jets. I mean, that's, what, that's 59 minutes and 45 seconds uh, right down to the wire. So uh, it was it was a special magical year, and then in '83 we're a better, even a better football team. We built the foundation in '82, and in '83 we were just better. Uh, we we understood the system. The coaches knew who we were, and uh, we wound up losing two games that year. I think we lost 34-33 to the Dallas Cowboys somewhere around there, and and then we lose to the Green Bay Packers 48-47 before we wind up uh, losing to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. We were two points away from having an undefeated season. We averaged 30, almost 35 points a game. And like I said, it wasn't one of those, wasn't one of those, mad, those situations where you think, are you going to win? The question was, how many were we going to score? I mean, that's how, that's how much confidence we had in our football team. But that, uh, that Super Bowl was – I remember spending – oh, going back to 82. I remember spending – an hour and a half on the phone with my buddy, Burt Reynolds, because we were staying out in Los Angeles and buddy and I talked for a good hour and a half the night before the Super Bowl. And even though it's a, it's a late game and, you know, the game was like at, at three o'clock in the afternoon, which is a late game because of it's six o'clock Eastern. Um, I remember getting up early and just you know running out onto the field and making sure that I didn't trip them during introductions and heck hardly remembering the early part of the game and, Different things that happened during that game were, were really special and magical. Um, but watching John break that run and uh, just watching him get in that end zone, I mean, was just unbelievable. And then we got the late touchdown to seal it. And then it's over. You know, I'm in the huddle. We're kneeling down. Um, the words to my teammates are winning Super Bowl formation on two. I took the snap. And I'll never forget, and I don't know if I covered this with you before, but I'll never forget I had this vision of Joe Namath running off the field, waving 
the you know his his index finger number one, and then I had another picture of my mind of Terry Bradshaw walking off of the field holding the ball up. So when I left the football field, you know, basically the image of Joe and Terry was in my head. You know, on my left hand I had the ball up in the air, my right hand I was waving my finger number one. But uh, I guess in in my mind's eye. I had seen those things before, and now it was the moment when I had a chance to do them. That would be cool. Super Bowl formation and just knowing it's over because, yeah. of, the, because of the clock. Nobody's going to hit a homer. <laughs> Nothing can happen right, right now. Right. It's it isn't over. a two-out rally. You know, it isn't a two-out rally. Right. You know, there's no walk-off. Right. Uh, we are walking off. We're walking off as world champions. I now remember there was a, a great sportscaster by the name of George Michael. He used to have George Michael's. Uh, machine. I remember. I remember it well. He pushed that button. Yep. George used to do the show and I'll never forget. I'm sitting out in, in Pasadena, California, sitting in the Rose Bowl, George and I under the lights, everybody's gone. The place is empty except for George and I. And I looked up behind George and there was the scoreboard. Washington 27, Miami 17. And I I looked at that and I went, dang, it's real. (laughs) It's just, that was the moment that it became real for me. Um, You know, the the euphoria that goes with the championships and everything is just incredible. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like a, it's like one of those snow globes where you shake it and when the, everything's going on, the snow is falling and all of a sudden it's on the ground and the clarity is there and that moment is there and it's something special. It really is. 83, you're a pro bowler again, MVP of the league. You throw for 3,700 yards and uh, you go back to the Super Bowl. Any different this time? I, you, you talk about that confidence and, and that particular time in Washington Redskins history. You guys knew you were good. You knew it was a matter of time. You knew we're not if we're going to win, but by how many points. Was it surreal when you lost that Super Bowl? Or did you go into it thinking, we're going to win this thing? Well, I, I want to take you back before, before the 83 season because – uh, I go to the Pro Bowl after the 82 season. We beat the Dolphins, and Bob Baumauer was a defensive tackle for them. So Thursday afternoon, Bob and I are sitting on the beach, sipping away at a, on a pina colada. And I, I, I was very reluctant to ask Bob this question, but I had to know. So I asked him a question. I said, Bob, what's it like to lose the Super Bowl? And he said, Joe, you wish to heaven you never got there. It's so devastating. And I said, man, I hope I never experienced that. Wouldn't you know the next year we go back and play the Raiders and I wind up having that feeling and I know what he felt like. But I that whole week I felt uncomfortable. My shoes didn't fit right. We were dealing with the wind. It was a you know, just everything was just screwed up, I guess you could say. And 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 I tell people this. I went into that Super Bowl thinking I'd already done it. I was a world champion. I didn't prepare as well as I should have. I didn't practice as well as I should have. I didn't study as much as I should have, as I look back now in hindsight, because I thought I was already there. I'd done it. You know, I'm a world champion. Hey, I got a ring to prove it. Now we're back. It's, it, it, now I'm going to go enjoy the Super Bowl experience. I'm going to go out to dinner. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to do radio shows, TV shows, and and. I just did not prepare myself 
to play in Super Bowl 18 like I should have. I thought I was preparing, but in hindsight, as I look back, I wasn't. I tried to live on yesterday's performance. And this is the thing that I try and stress to so many people. You know, I do so many speeches and and, and I talk to different groups and I say, look, and I, and I tell the people that, you know, salesperson of the year, manager of the year, you know, division of the year, whatever it might be, enjoy the experience, enjoy the win, but don't make it the thing that you think that you can't get better or that you don't have to work harder the next time because now you have set the barometer of excellence for yourself and me. I, I look back now and I think, you know, I just, I just took it for granted. I took for granted the fact that we were going to be, we were there again. We'd beaten the Raiders earlier in the year. Of course, I didn't factor in that Howie Long didn't play. I don't think Marcus Allen played. They acquired um, uh, Mike Haynes. Uh, you know, Lester Hayes played the other corner. And um, it was, you know, and then we had things happen. We had a punt blocked. Uh, I throw the interception at the end of the half. But I, I've got to tell you, I, I'll, I'll fast forward now after Super Bowl 18. So halftime, I walk to the sidelines. It's we're down. Um, we're down by, I think, 14-3, down by 11. So I go to the sidelines and Coach Gibbs, we, there's like 13 seconds to go. We're on the 14-yard line and Coach says, I want to run rocket screen. I said, Joe, I don't feel good about putting the ball in the air. I mean, it's, there's, not, there's not a lot of time. I don't know what we're going to accomplish. He says, it worked against them last time. And I'm thinking, you don't know that? Do you think they know that? So now I, I start walking away. I get about five yards away from him. I turn around and he points at me. He goes, run it. I said, okay. Hey, we're here. You got us to the Super Bowl again. I take the snap from center. I call the play, take the snap from center. It looks like they're in a zone. They took Matt Millen out of the game. They put Jack Squirek in the game to specifically cover Joe Washington, who I was going to throw the screen to. I throw the ball. Just as it releases from my hand, Jack breaks for it, intercepts it. It's touchdown. Now it's 21-3. It's halftime. So I fall on the sword. I'm the good soldier. Bad decision. Should have never thrown it. But then about four years after that, Coach Gibbs has a, uh, a youth for uh, tomorrow home for boys. And I think young men and young women, that's a charity. And so we're doing a dinner for it. And I walked up and says, Coach, I, 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 this has been bothering me. He says, what's that? I said, you know that rocket screen you called in Super Bowl 18? He says, yeah. I said, that was probably one of the worst calls I've ever heard had you call. <laughs> You know what he says to me? He says, you know, Joe, you're probably right, but I got to tell you something. That pass was no peach either. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, – it was uh, – but, uh, again, I, I've i tried to take from every experience in my life, life whether, it's, whether it's good or whether it's not good, I just believe it's a, a, an opportunity to learn something. And, and what I learned from the successes are they're fleeting. And you have to work for them and you can't take them for granted. And when I look, what I take from the, the things that are not as successful is why. What happened? What did I do? What could have I done better uh, to be able to change the outcome? Was it me or was it the circumstances that I, I was involved in? You know, what those are 
You know, that's the way I sort of look at life. I, I think I've said this before. I'm a windshield guy. I'm not a rear view mirror guy. Can't change yesterday, but I can sure affect what happens tomorrow. Yeah, these these experiences in our lives and our career, they shape us to, to make us the people that we are. And, and as high as you were in 82, running off that field, it probably felt, well, in hindsight, looking back on it, it's like pretty cool get to go to the Super Bowl back to back years. But that's probably not how you were feeling when that clock ran out in 83. But, but no. this game, and it's, you know, this game, it doesn't matter what game it is. The game at the highest level, any sport, uh, I found it, it'll humble you faster than you know what hit you. You know, just when you think you're the, you're the crap, you're the, you're the big dog. It, this thing will, this game will find a way to knock you down. And, and it makes us what we are. It makes, it makes us appreciate the great times, the good times, because you know how hard they are. Uh, and how hard you've got to work to accomplish those great years, those great seasons. Those Man, for, you are so right. For you, you those so Super Bowl right. champions. Um, you know, and sometimes that comes with, with failing quite a bit. It comes with maturity. It comes with age, obviously. Uh, you know, been there, done that, going through the grind year after year. But, uh, it, man, it makes those high times so much more appreciative because you know how hard they are and they're fleeting. Yeah. Hey, Brad, you know what's interesting? Um, I was doing an autograph session with Mike Tyson, um, you know, about, I don't know, five, six years ago. And we were talking and Mike said something to me that I think is so prophetic and so apropos, with, which is exactly what you're talking about. He said, if you don't find humility, life will find it for you. And I, I think that's one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard from someone, uh, no matter what walk of life you're in. If you don't find humility, life will find it for you. It's so true. So true. Uh, 84, another great year for you personally, throw for 3,300 yards. And we get to the 85 season. And the question you probably haven't been asked ever, (laughs) ever. I was almost going to skip it, but I can't. I can't. When you get get size on, you got to ask him to this day, do you watch it? Does your family watch it? Did your kids watch it? No. Uh, well, I've, I've seen it once. Uh, it I don't 30, like, but believe me. It's 36, I, it's 36 I, years ago, over 36 years. I saw it on the 20th anniversary of my break. A guy by the name of David Haberstein, I believe, wrote for the New York Times. He came down to Washington. He said, I want to watch this game. I want to watch the broken leg with you. I want to experience what you're experiencing at that moment. And uh, I didn't quite understand that he actually wanted me to watch it. I thought we were going to talk about it. He was going to watch it. So finally he comes down. He says, we're ready to watch. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, we're, you and I are going to watch this, this game together. And I went, well, shoot, I didn't realize that. And I said, okay, fine. So we, we sat. And as it gets closer to the time when I know what's coming, I get this queasiness in my stomach and, and then I see it, and, and that's the end of it. That's that's it. It's I'm, I've seen it. I will never look at it again. Um, there are times when I've had experiences where it's happened, and you know I can take you, I can take you through that whole night, um, the night when it was it was broken. I mean, we were four and five. I wasn't playing well. I'll never forget getting up from. My, I'm in the locker room. 
this is going to be my night. It's Monday night football. This is going to be the night that I'm going to show the world that, that, that Joe Theismann kid, that football player, he's coming back. He's making a statement again. So I get up from my locker. I start out of the locker room. We used to have that Redskin logo right above the exit sign. And I, I'm a superstitious by nature. So I, I hit that logo. And uh, I, for 12 years, I never said a word. But this night, I said these words. I said, tonight your life's going to change, Joe. And I went out on that field, and I didn't realize I was into prophecy, man. It was, <laughs> it, it was like unbelievable. And so you know, my leg gets broken. Um, I wasn't playing well. The game, the, everything was just so phonetic, I, frantic. I mean, it was things were moving faster than they'd ever moved before for me. But I don't. I, I just couldn't put a finger on it. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lawrence grabs my left shoulder. He comes left shoulder. He swings around and catches my right leg. And you can hear the you can hear the sound on the TV. The pow pow. I heard it. Obviously, sound like two muzzle gunshots. And I lay there on the field and Coach Gibbs comes running out. He kneels down next to me. He says, Joe, he kneels down next to me. He says, Joe, this, you've been so much to this football team. Joe, you've meant so much to all of us. Joe, this is a heck of a mess you've left me in. And we both smiled. And then they, then I, you know, and I pop me on the stretcher and they start to wheel me out of the stadium. And, and I stopped the gurney and I looked at Harry Carson. I says, Harry, I understand you're thinking about retiring. He said, I am, Joe. I said, don't you go retiring because I'm coming back. He said, that may be the case, pal, but it ain't going to be tonight. Um, and so they wheeled me out. And as they started to load me into the ambulance, uh, Jay Schrader hit Art Monk down the sidelines with a bomb. And then, you know, I got I got to the hospital and they moved me into a, the prep room and I had them bring in a TV so I could watch the rest of the game. They stuck a coat hanger in it. It was a black and white TV, watched the game, put me back together and then you know, I, then I was done. I didn't think I was done. I'd broken, I, you know, to me, I'd broken my leg before I could come back from it. But, you know, back in, back in 1985, if you were 35 years old, heck, if you were 33 or 34, you were old. They yeah. didn't, they didn't want you around. You know, you were, you know, the economics weren't that great. I was, you know, I was making a, a million dollars. I was fourth highest paid player in the league. Can you believe that? Fourth it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's I, just, amazing. I, I shake my head. I, you know, and I don't begrudge these guys a penny. I am so happy for every athlete that can get whatever they can get. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled for them. It's just the, the window is so small. Get everything you can get. But again, I, I think back, you know, the fourth highest paid player in the league. And I think if you included bonuses, I, I think they said I was the highest in 84. And, and, and now I, you know, you think of, Josh Allen, 250 million, 150 guaranteed. Patrick Mahomes, you know, owns part of the Kansas City Royals. I mean, uh, I, la I, I laugh uh, at the economics. I asked a coach one day, I asked an owner at the Super Bowl in uh, Houston. I was with the owners and I asked one of the owners, I said, do you believe there'll be a $50 million quarterback? And he said, yeah. I said, man, I just can't even fathom that. $50 million quarterback. And if there is going to be one, it should be Aaron Rodgers. It should be Aaron Rodgers. Um, Kirk Cousins up in Minnesota is guaranteed $35 million this year. And next year, I believe his cap number is $45 million. So if Kirk is worth $45, Aaron's worth $50. And I, I think we, we might see it. We might just well see it coming up, which, it, it, first of all, it speaks to the amount of money that that's out there paying for it. 
Um, and you're, you know, you're talking about a huge part of your salary cap. Yeah, it's the, the money is is you talk about that million dollars and and that was big time back then. You said you were four. You were four. Look at look at Bryce Harper. Look at the guys in baseball. Oh, it's ridiculous. Trout signed for four hundred million. He's the best. He's the best player in the game. Okay. You know something was really funny. I I thought of this when Harper signs for his money. I'm thinking Mike Trout's agent is sitting there going, you know what. He's got a dartboard, okay? And he's got a dart. And he's got these numbers up there. He's got 350. He's got 375. He's got 400. He's, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna close my eyes and throw the dart. And it hits the 400 million mark. And it's like, okay, let's ask for it. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously the Angels have deep pockets, and and but you know, I I guess I try in my mind to Picture a pay scale that makes sense. Is an outfielder going to determine whether or not you win a championship? Uh, I, I, I can't get my I can't get my mind around it. You're well, going to bat, you're going to bat one of nine times. You're going to get up maybe three, four, four, maybe five times a game. Um, and you know, as a quarterback, you handle the ball all the time. Sure. You're either handed off or you're thrown or something else. But in baseball, I see the numbers that certain people get. And I'm thinking, first of all, congratulations. Secondly, I don't know how I don't know how you as an organization justify paying somebody that you know you're gonna pay them $150 million when they're out of the game anyway. It's gonna be I mean, they're not at what, at 35, how are they how much are they gonna contribute right. as an outfielder? So it's a little crazy. And, and, and the money. Yeah, the money in baseball today, it's different because everybody. Oh, well, he's he's not living up to his contract. I said, here's the deal. When you when you get to an elite position where you're one of the best in the world, when you're a superstar and you're a free agent, uh, they're not paying you. If they're giving you three hundred million dollars, they're not paying you for those last three years. Yeah. The reason they have to pay you those last three years is to get the rights to negotiate with you because everybody else is in the five or five or six year range, the ones that are willing to go to 10 are the ones that get them. But they also know those last three years, we're just going to consider those a wash. We just have to do that to get this deal done. Uh, the economics of, of, of sports in general is amazing to me. But I think you, you made a good point earlier. Uh, if they're paying them that much, these owners aren't stupid people. <laughs> so the bottom line is that money going out, there's a ton of revenue coming in. You see, in baseball, baseball is a little different, too. In football, we don't have quarterbacks. You don't have 32 guys that you could pay X amount of dollars to. You've got a, you've got a lot of you probably got eight to 10, maybe 12, which would be a third of the league at the quarterback position that give you a chance to win a championship. Right. Or a chance to get in the playoffs. But other than that, good luck. But now, but you have to pay that twelve to twenty-two group because you don't have any options. You got a bunch of older guys or a bunch of guys that haven't proven they can play. Yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, well, I'm not going to let you get out of that either. Give me a give me a little Burt Reynolds. 
I never met Burt Reynolds. I loved him as a kid watching all oh, his yeah, movies. Yeah. I loved him most well, at the end, though. I love when he did the Dirk Diggler and when he did uh, – he had a couple roles in his in his uh, later years. Deliverance was one of his greatest, yeah. one of his best acting performances. Yeah. And it's one of the movies he didn't direct. You know, we, we did – I did – Terry Terry Branchow did Cannonball 1. I did Cannonball 2. You did too, yeah. I did too. Uh, my first movie was with uh, George Raft. People will have to Google it after they listen to this podcast. Uh, but George Raft was one of the all-time great gangsters in television. Bert was Bert was a fun-loving guy. I mean, he he lived life to the fullest. Um, loved football. You know, was a halfback at Florida State. Uh, we we took. Uh, I went and saw him down at the ranch in Florida one one weekend, and we were. He said, "Come on, let's go over and see Bobby." I said, "What do you mean?" So we're 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 in we're up in like in Fort Lauderdale, and of course Tallahassee is not a short trip away. So he says, let's go see Bobby. I think it was a Friday afternoon. I said, oh, okay, fine. So he, he says, let's go. We'll take the helicopter. So we hop in the helicopter. We fly over. I visit with Coach Bowden for a while. We have fly back. And and uh, we talked about football. We talked about movies. Um, we talked about horses. Um, I went to see him out in Los Angeles uh, when he – he had, uh, I think it's TMJ, had, had a problem with his jaw. And everybody thought he was had AIDS and he was sick. And, you know, it, it, it was just, it was a shame to, to see him go through all this. And then he came back and, like I said, the Super Bowl. We, we talked about the game. We talked about the season. We talked about just a lot of different things. He, he was really a, he was a fun friend and a very, very, you know, very generous, wonderful person and just had the best laugh. He had a chuckle. I wouldn't even call it a laugh. He just had a chuckle that when you were around him, it just it made you smile. Yeah, I loved I love Barry. I love back in the day. I love Hooper. Hooper is one of my favorite. Right. He's one of my favorite of all time. I think uh, I think uh, Bradshaw was in Hooper, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. They were at the fight. He was in all those little. It seems like Bradshaw was always popping up in those days. He did. He did. Absolutely. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. It's really funny. Actors want to be athletes. Athletes want to be actors. Musicians. You know, it, it, whether we're. You know, you look at the world of entertainment in in its total nature. Certain aspects of entertainment want to be something else in entertainment. You know it. It's really funny. Like we've got, you know, we have a lot of guys in, in guys in, in the game that, you know, they want to be musicians. Um, well, it's cool to trade stories too. For me, it's great to my favorite musician. All right. Tell me about this. And, this, and they want to talk about uh, facing Randy Johnson. What's that right. like? You know, so it's, it's cool. It's a back and forth, but you're right. But the musicians, I think, I think rock stars just want to stay rock stars. They don't want to be athletes or, or, or actors. Yeah. They just, they, they like their gig. They like having 60,000 people in the palm of their hand when they come on the stage. You know something, there's nothing like it. I, um, having had the opportunity for 40 plus years to be able to do speeches and still doing them. I did a, I did a speech in um, uh, Indianapolis at the old Hoosier dome for Amway. There were 30,000 people, 30,000 packed into the place. And these don't start till late at night. And I'll never forget walking out on that stage and the rush that you get. And I, I, I finally could understand how 
bands and musicians can walk out in front of an audience and you basically live off the energy that's coming out of that audience. Now, when I walked out on that stage and and started to talk and, and you know, you'd say something and people would respond to it. It's like, wow, it's it's an unbel- it's an unreal experience, almost an out of body experience um, when you do that. And it, it's a I guess it's it's a little bit like, you know, when we played, you know, what was the biggest crowd you played in front of, Brett? In, in oh, it's probably 60. Yeah. See, we had 101 in Pasadena, I believe, uh, out there for the Super Bowl. And you play in front of that many people. And, and you look at like schools like Michigan and, and some of these Ohio State where they have 100,000 seats, uh, Texas A&M. Um, it, it's, it's deafening. But really, when you get into the game, and I don't know if you experience this, when you get into the game and you get into that moment, you don't hear anything. It's just there's a silence. You you know, you it's almost like it's, it's almost like you're looking at people and their mouths are open and they're got all these gestures, but you don't hear a thing. It's just it, it, it's really a, a, an unbelievable experience to go through. Yeah. And that's why I can't. It, it bothers me. This this golf when they have the quiet police sign and everybody's. <laughs> I said, listen, they're not talking about your mother. That's all they do when I'm in the in the batter's box. No, you're right, though. I mean, we're kind of just we're, we're wired that way is once that game starts and you're between those lines. That's it. If you can hear everybody, you're going to have a rough time. But I do right. remember that. thing. The eerie part was where I, you know, I'd go to. Florida to play the Marlins and old Joe Robbie and there'd be, you know, 8,000 people in that stadium. And, you know, that's a monstrous stadium. That's when you could hear people. That's when the difference was when there were 60,000 and everybody screaming at me and uh, negative, man, that, that it, it felt good when you did something well, because then you'd, you'd open ears and go, all right, now I want to hear it. Yeah. Now you hear it. Right? But you have, yeah, we have that innate ability to tune it in and tune it out. And you better be able to, if you want to be successful uh, at the highest. I, but I remember you, you talk about those big crowds and, you know, I, I didn't get that many of them, but once in a great while you get that standing ovation where they ask you to take a curtain call and come out of the dugout oh. and wave your cap. I had a few of them and they are so cool. And, and we used to have in Seattle, uh, Eddie Vetter would come down and, and take BP with us. And he was a big baseball fan. And I'd get a curtain call. And he's like, oh, when you get the curtain call. I said, you get a curtain call every night. You don't even have to sing good. I said, you get a shitty set. And, and you're getting curtain calls. I got to hit a three-run homer and a three-two count to win it. Yep. But you yeah. can just, you know, you can just mail it in and you're going to get that stamp. That's that's why Rockstar, different level. <laughs> Very yeah. cool, though. Very cool. Uh Post-career now, you go to ESPN, 88 to 2007, and I'm interested in how did Joe, how did you call a game? Did you call it from the from the quarterback's perspective? Yeah, you know, actually, even before I went to ESPN, I worked at CBS for two years, and uh, with, you know, with the passing of John Madden, who was, you know, iconic, uh, is the only way you could describe John, bigger than life. <clears throat> when I went to CBS, John and Pat were the the team. They were the standard by which everybody was measured. And um, I actually left CBS because of John Madden. I, I, you know, in anything, anytime you're involved in competition, which broadcasting is, you know, you want to have the number one chair. And there was no way 
that I would ever, ever be in the number one chair because that was John's. And uh, I remember studying him. I remember working with him. I remember being around him. Um, he meant he means so much to football and, and all of the things that are taking place with respect to his career and who he was are so deserved because he was such a phenomenal individual. Um, but I, then I wound up, you know, it was between O.J. Simpson and me going to ESPN um, and they made the decision to go with me and I worked with Mike Patrick and and for a while and then Paul McGuire joined us. We had a three person booth and it was it was fun, man. And we had a ball. Uh, saw some of the most incredible things in football. Chris Carter's 1,000th 1000th, 1000th catch. Um, watch Lawrence Taylor against the against the Saints one day with a bad shoulder, have two sacks and a forced fumble with one arm. Um, Flipper Anderson catching, you know, 200 plus yards of, of receptions. So many different experiences that we had a chance to to do and cover and and broadcast. And at ESPN, when we started, we only had eight games. I was eight weeks in the studio and eight weeks on the road. And then we finally got 16 games and managed to get out on the road and, you know, work with some great people. John Wildhack was my first. John's now the athletic director at Syracuse. Freddie Gadelli, who just went in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, is the director of, of um, Thursday night, Sunday night football. Done a fantastic job. Jay Rothman did a tremendous job at ESPN for a number of years. And, you know, it, it's – it was. It's great to learn from the guys. It's great to experience things. And Susie Colbert still is one of the great professionals. Uh, Michelle Tafoya, someone else who I had an opportunity to work with, just wonderful, you know, women in in the profession. Um, what they bring to it is so valuable and and so wonderful. And uh, so I mean, all those years at ESPN were absolutely great. And then we went on, you know, and then I went to the NFL Network after that. Uh, and then we did a show called um, uh, Playbook, work with Brian Baldinger and, and Sterling Sharp and uh, just talked about the games. And it was, again, a, a fun experience. Just I've always been around the game. That's why I guess I love it so much. I mean, you know, you, you start when you're a little kid at 12 years old and uh, at, at 40, 45, 50, I was still broadcasting football. I was still doing that little kid thing, just talking about the game. And uh, not too many people get the opportunity to do that. And so I'm very thankful. Lawrence Taylor, how's your relationship with him? I, I would think, <laughs> I, I would assume it's, let me guess, I'm assume it's really good, but it's, it's gotta be kind of surreal. Like that was the, that was your last play. It was yeah. because of him. He yeah. knows it, you know it. How is that relationship? You know, it, it's fine. I, I see LT um, at, at different events. We do autograph sessions and he'll be there. And um, I just, you know, we've actually played golf together, but I won't let him stand on my left where I can't see him. <laughs> he has to be visual to me all the time. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I told you this, but about four or five years after, I guess four or five years after the injury, uh, Lawrence had a bar up in Jersey and they have these, you know, Monday night shows where the players there and the people come in the restaurant and they ask them questions and they talk about the game and yada, yada, yada. So he invites me up. So it's off of route three up in Jersey. And so we're doing the show and they play the broken leg behind us. Neither one of us look at it. And I turned to Lawrence and I said, um, 
I said, you and I are forever going to be connected through this injury. We know how it affected my life. How did it affect yours? And again, something very prophetic I've learned from someone. He said, Joe, I learned a great lesson that night. No matter how great you are at what you do, it can be over in an instant. And that's why every day you have to get the most out of the day. You have to practice the hardest. You have to work the hardest. You have to do the best you possibly can because there's no guarantee that tomorrow is going to be here. And, and I, you know, I saw, I've always remembered that. Always remembered it. Um, and, uh, you know, so to me, you know, we, we see each other. I laugh. We laugh. He hugs me. I still, he still, at least he doesn't hug me and put me on the ground like he used to. Yeah. He just hugs me. <laughs> no, and I think you're right. I mean, we, it's, that was probably a very, very humbling moment for him. And, and the words he's, he spoke to you, oh, you know, mean, the, speaks you volumes. At, yeah. You look at the film and, you know, he's waving to the sidelines. He saw it, you know, we heard it and he saw it and it was uh, the pain was, I get people come up and say, did it hurt? I said, well, let me do this. Let me go get my car. Hang your foot over a curb. Yeah. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. you know, if you want to experience it, I can accommodate you. But And then all of a sudden, from the knee down, my leg was completely numb. As a matter of fact, when they were transporting me from the stadium to the hospital, when we got there, they were moving me off the hospital gurney onto a, excuse me, off the ambulance gurney to a hospital gurney. And they forgot to pick up the lower right part of my leg. And I looked at it. And I looked at my leg sort of hanging down and I turned to one of the attendants and I said, excuse me, somebody pick up the rest of me and put it on here, please. Didn't feel a thing. Didn't feel a thing. But um, that's that's the amazing nature of the body. Yeah, I. By the way, I, I love watching some gory stuff. I like, you know, I love, I love fights. I love MMA fights. I can't watch your. You said you've seen it once. I've maybe seen it a half time. Oh. I don't like seeing stuff like that. I knew how bad it was, and I remember. And and I, if it, you pulled it up right now, I wouldn't watch it. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't. I, I don't like it. All I right, it. I know what happened. Cannonball Run Two. We mentioned you were in that. And I'm really, I'm kind of starting to date myself too. I remember BJ and the Bear. I know you're in there, <laughs> but I want to hear about hosting American Gladiators. Yeah, we um, actually, Mike Adamley and I did that. It was, it was, it's really. Um, you see the show American Ninja Warrior now. That was the American Gladiators. I guess you could call it now, maybe the grandfather of of those types of shows. Um, it, it, there was obstacle courses, there were beams, um, that you had to walk over. There was jousting. Um, they had, you know, these guns that fired tennis balls, all kinds of different things. And, and Mike and I had a chance to host. I did it first two for the first two years. I mean, our beams were basically, it was really weird when we built the set or when they built the set, um, there were like screws sticking up out of the ground. Well, you know, people would be jousting and, and you know, they, they were just screws sticking up how they bolted the the platform that they worked on uh, under the ground. And you had uh, you had things where you'd you'd run and throw balls into buckets. And I mean, all kinds of wonderful stuff. It was it was really it was neat to do stuff like that. I've been very blessed to be able to do so many different things in the world of entertainment uh, in general. Um, I've never sang and have no intention of ever singing because I can't. Um, 
My mom used to make me sit in the front pew because my voice was so bad. She said, the preacher has to be here. Everybody else has come to listen, not to you, but to him. So I used to sit in the front pew and sing hymns there. Uh, but it was yeah, it was being in, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed movies. You know, Cannonball was one. BJ was another one. Uh, I've done Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I did. I've done recently a couple of Hallmark movies, Love on the Sidelines and Snow Coming. I've been a couple of the movies I've had a chance to do. And yeah, I, I like to I like to extend myself. Uh, you know, you, you get nervous doing it. It's it's challenging and it gives you a different perspective and a different respect for other people with with a job like that. Actors, you know, actors and actresses, man, they work hard. It's a long day. It's hard. There's a lot to it. Um, and the director makes it either either easier or tough on you, depending upon how demanding they want to be. And I've been blessed to work with uh, with some really great ones. And I enjoy the experience. You know, football was my life. And now there's a life after it. And I, I really enjoy the motivational speaking. And, you know, I wrote a book called How to Be a Champion Every Day. And uh, the essence of the book are the things that I talk about. I talk about opportunities and goals and attitude, and customer service and teamwork and motivation and and those things that I think are, apply in the world of sports, the world of business, and our own lives. All right, we're getting to your mask. You knew it was coming. We got the one-bar mask for Joe Theismann. <laughs> I, I've had time to think about it. We got Bob Boone. We got Joe Theismann. Both got really good hair. Yep. And both wear the most, well, I like them, but the most ridiculous mask that you could pick. You got the punter's mask, one prong. Bob Boone's got the 19... 1950 style umpire mask yet he's yet he's playing yeah yet he's playing the 80s and the 90s but i'm his son so i think that's just dad's mask doesn't everybody wear that mask (laughs) but now i've got you to go okay what 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 brought that on the one the one bar and uh, i just want to i want to hear all about the mask it's it's taken on a life of its own i wore this i wore the single bar in canada I first start. I wore. I had two bars at the University of Notre Dame on my helmet, um, face mask. That's way too many bars, Joe. Oh God, yeah. So I went <laughs> to Canada, and you know, it, you know, it's it's funny. You get these things in your head. It's like um, I took I took the pads off my thigh pads and just wore shells, um, and and just wore knee pads and shells because I thought it would make me faster. Uh, my shoulder pads were really small. I didn't wear I didn't wear a hip pad girdle. I, I just taped some knee pads around my hips just to protect them all to make me. So I did all these goofy little things. So when I went to Canada, um, Greg Barton, who was the other quarterback up there, Greg had a single bar. And so I said, Hey, you know, you know, I'm a, so I put a single bar on up there and it allowed me to be able, as I handed off, I was very finicky. I never wore anything on my right wrist or right elbow. And, and my, my hands were very sensitive to the to whether the ball was wet or whether it had stickum on it or whether it was dry, whether it was moist, whatever it might be. And so uh, I just it, it bothered me handing off. I, I created this scenario in my own mind that it bothered me. And then when I came to the Washington Redskins, Billy Kilmer and Sonny Jurgensen both wore single bars. And I thought, what would I look like if I wore a double bar? So I, I wore the single bar there a little bit because of peer pressure. And again, because it it helped me hand off. But I was the last 
non-kicker to be grandfathered in to be able to wear a uh, single bar in 85. And uh, that was my that was my signature. It was everybody has a signature. You you know, you had your mask, I had mine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something about good in sports right now. Oh, I, I think I think sports today gives people an escape from the craziness that we're seeing in society today. Um, so many, so many tensions in society, so many different elements of society that have been become so divisive that in sports, you see people from all walks of life, race, creeds, um, religious backgrounds, all pointing towards one goal, one chance to be able to, to hoist the trophy or one moment to be able to, um, you know, vent your frustrations. I think it gives a place for fans to go to to scream and yell and and get behind somebody and and you know look at a quote unquote hero. You know, people have come up to me and said, you know, Joe, you're my hero. But and I appreciate that. But you know, to me, the heroes are the men and women that put on a uniform, the firemen, the policemen, the, our soldiers, our men and women that that go out and defend our freedoms. They're they're the heroes in our lives. You know, we in the world of athletics, we go play a game that we played when we were little kids. And now people pay us absorbent amounts of money to go do it. And, and you still love it. There's still got to be that child inside of you or else you just don't play it well. And, and then we're going to go home. People that put on a uniform that protect us, they don't know whether they're coming home. You know, if you go into a fire or you go out on patrol or, you know, you're you're stationed somewhere in the world or even in this country, there's no guarantee that you're coming home. And so I have so much respect and admiration for those heroes to me that I really think sports is is that that's why it was so important to get people back in the stands, Brett. I mean, so important to have people cheering again, to be able to, if for nothing else, vent their frustrations, because we certainly have a lot of them. Um you know, uh, it's just we need it. We need we need sports right now worse than we ever have, I think, in the world. Just like during the war, you you had to have sports to give some p- people some place to go, uh, some some alternative to the realities that we're living and dealing with. Joe Theismann, thanks for coming on the program. It's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, and what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we kick it to Dan Levy for a question from the fans. Dan, gentlemen, how are ya? Hi, Dan. All right, Joe. This one comes from Marty in Baltimore, and he wants to know this, Joe. What was it like playing in DC at the height of the Redskins' success? And who was the biggest person you met or signed an autograph for? Um. Wow. First of all, it was unbelievable. I mean, uh, the success that we had during that period of time under Coach Gibbs. And, not, you know, I mean, I got there in 74, 79. We, we, you know, had a chance to do something special. 81, Coach Gibbs takes over. 82, we go to the Super Bowl. 83, we're back to the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to buy dinner anywhere. Everybody bought it for you. Uh, it gave me the privilege to meet uh, a number of presidents. Uh, President Reagan was one of the people I really appreciated being around. Uh, President Clinton was another one that I had a chance to meet. But uh, And during that time, though, uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, get to know Burt Reynolds. As a matter of fact, in 1982, the night before the Super Bowl, I spent an hour and a half on the phone with, with uh, Burt 
just talking football because, you know, he was a, an unbelievable halfback down at Florida State, huge football fan. Um, and, you know, he was he, he put me in Cannonball Run 2 after that. But during that time in Washington, everybody would focus on what the Washington quote unquote Redskins were doing more than anything that was happening in politics. And that was sort of neat uh, to be the talk of the town in a in a, a town where, you know, it's really the most powerful one in the world. And all of a sudden you're a part of uh, of something that everybody's talking about. I mean, it was man, you wanted to be out on the streets. You wanted to walk around and you wanted to say hello to people. And uh, it was exciting and fun. Joe Theismann, thank you so much for coming on the Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know what time it is, don't you? Uh, Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner. All right. Close your eyes, Booner. This one comes from Jeff in Cincinnati. He wants to know, Booner, put yourself back in your playing days. January 1st, offseason. What are you concentrating on? What are you doing during this part of the offseason? Back to my playing. Now, early in my playing days, minor leagues, my first couple years in the big leagues, man, I've already been hitting for a month and a half. Uh, As I got a little elderly... And I got some uh, some time under my belt. This is the time I'd start doing the baseball activities. So the throwing, the sprints, uh, hitting in the cage. I wouldn't touch a bat. Uh, you know, for the second half of my career, I wouldn't touch a bat until January came. Unless I needed to make a swing change from the previous season, which actually a couple times in my career I've made swing changes. And then that's a whole different offseason. But the normal offseason, January 1 was that time where where I pick up the bat and ball for the first time. Uh, just when the season ended the previous year, it was just weight room, weight room as much as I could up until January 1st. When January 1st started, then I started doing the baseball activities. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this year. Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone podcast. EB executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital stuff that gets handled by Liz Landry. Thanks, Liz. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five. And while you're at it, give it a five star rating and share your feelings about the Boone podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. If you want to ask the Booner a question, do so at TheBoon29 on, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. He can be found in all those places. You can also find me on all those social media areas at Bates on Air, B-A-S-S on Air. And for all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat, turn the lights off. Let's roll. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 